invite you if uh, you have a Bible or um, some electronic device that has the Bible on it, if you would uh, go to Luke chapter 12 as we continue a little two-part series. Um, Kind of a cool day um, today and this weekend. Uh, One, as we remember, uh, for Memorial Day on the way here, um, Claire asked me about all the flags that were everywhere, and it was kind of neat to talk to her about the very place we're going, uh, going to church to worship Jesus. And I've got several friends that are overseas in countries that cannot worship freely. They have to worship uh, underground or hidden in houses. And um, man, what a great sacrifice so many have made so that we can do what we're doing this morning. It's also cool because um, the Wager clan is here. I don't want to embarrass you guys, but um, I won't. I try not to embarrass you guys. Uh, Randy and Jennifer were um, probably like my first real youth pastors. And my dad, is, uh, he's been a mentor my whole life. And he kind of taught me kind of doctrines of the faith. But uh, Randy, I remember one of the first times I met him, he asked me what God had been saying to me. And that was just a kind of a foreign concept to me, even as a, between my eighth and ninth grade year. Um, going into high school. And uh, anyway, I feel like some of those very questions kind of set me on this path that we're at. And that's one of the things that, you know, the question he asked me is one that we ask you every week, what's God saying to you? And it's on the back of that card. So I'm just very thankful for all the investment that uh, that they've made in me personally. Um, We're we're in, we're going to talk about money again. Um, So I know you're excited. Um, You know, what's funny is last week we talked about marriage and there's when you do marriage sermons, everybody's taking notes, man. Like the teenagers are taking notes on marriage sermons. Y'all got to get this right. And then when we come to money, everybody just kind of clams up and just, you know, starts, you know, surfing uh, Facebook or something. I don't know what they do. Um, you know, since we started uh, Covenant, we haven't been, we haven't really been shy to talk about money. We've talked about money quite, quite frequently, at least three or four times a year. But those aren't no, necessarily my favorite Sundays, and mostly because... I'm just kind of, maybe it's a fear of man inside of me. I feel like people are going to be so offended when we talk about money. You know, in America, we hold, that's the one thing you can't talk about is our money. I feel like the gospel offends enough. Every week we talk about this, right? You're a sinner. You're headed, you know, to separation from God in a place called hell. You need to repent of your sins and turn to him. That's offensive enough, right? That statement divides the room. Much less, let's go to this next degree and talk about money. But when we look at scripture, Man, Jesus is talking about it all the time. If you would read through the book of Luke, you would see that he talks about money more than he, maybe, maybe only second to the kingdom of God, but more than he talks about anything else. He's always talking about money. In this very passage, the context of Luke 12 is interesting too, because at the beginning of Luke 12, it says in verse, in verse one, in the meantime, there's so many thousands of people had gathered, they're trampling one another. Jesus begins to talk very loudly to his disciples so that the crowds can overhear. And he's not talking to them about the kingdom. He's talking to them about money. And so that's what we're going to kind of, this is like part two in this sermon that Jesus is telling or teaching on money. And just to kind of catch you up, I know the first part of this we did almost a month ago because we put the family series in between there and then um, we're kind of wrapping it up today. But last time we saw a man that had some wealth. He had this inheritance coming to him and then he catches Jesus in the crowd and demands that Jesus intercede on his behalf to go and tell his brother to divide the inheritance properly. And we talked last week. I mean, last time, last sermon um, about how money can make us covetous. It, It can... It can make us covet always desiring more. 
So he saw this, the man that had a lot, and Jesus talked about that. And if you want to go, if you really want to know Jesus and his understanding of money, go read those first uh, 15 verses, maybe 10 of the most, um, the strongest teachings Jesus ever does on money. And you can, you can go and read that and get, get upset with him if you want to. So we talked about, uh, you know, people with money. And now Jesus is going to address his disciples who have nothing. They literally don't have, they left everything to follow him. And I feel like maybe there's a balance of our perception of this even in this room. People with money and people without money. And what Jesus says is both of them will find struggle. If money makes you, the kind of the first overarching, I guess, uh, thought of this passage is if money makes you anxious or covetous, it's got you. He addresses his disciples, men who have no money. And he just talks to them about it. He kind of lays it out there in both these scenarios because money can ruin your life or it can be a resource that leads to worship and mission. Money can cause pride and anxiety or it can be a tool that's used to glorify God. Regardless, money is concrete, genuine, litmus test of our heart. Jesus said it so plainly when he said, where you put your money in, your treasure, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. So let's, uh, let's just kind of jump into um, the passage. And uh, that Jason read earlier in Luke chapter 12 and starting in verse 22. This is what he says to his disciples. And he said to the disciples, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. We see already, and maybe you've been in that place. I know I certainly have been in that place where there is no money. And you check the bank account and, you know, you've already had overdraft fees. There's no money and you still have, you know, a week or two until the, uh, until the paycheck comes again. And just that very thing, we, you know, before, before all the automated online banking, I would get a call from uh, Bank One back then is where I started my banking. And I had this overdraft. It's also the same time when cell phones came in and I had a problem with those. I remember the first time I got like a $375 cell phone bill. You know, because they like gave you like 20 minutes a month. And what can you do with that, right? Um, And your heart just sinks and you think, I do not have the money to pay for this. I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what's coming. Maybe you've been in that situation. And this, this is where the disciples are. They literally have nothing. You know, Jesus has sent them out by twos before and told them to bring nothing with them except for kind of their little overcoat that they're going to sleep in. That's all they have. So you can imagine waking up tomorrow with no resources and no house and no bank account and nothing, right? And being, being homeless and have nothing. And Jesus is looking to these disciples. He's not talking about, man, don't worry about the third and fourth car. Don't worry about the big screen TV. Don't worry about the vacation house. This is not what Jesus is saying. Look at the words of Jesus. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then Jesus kind of breaks into these. He gives us kind of two illustrations. And maybe you can tune out for the rest of the sermon, but catch these two illustrations. I love this. To kind of give point, put this point across, he says in verse 24, consider the ravens, consider the birds. They neither sow nor they reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns. They have no savings account. They have nothing to put their stuff in. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are they than birds? This is the second time, right, that, that, that we've, mentioned, we've mentioned birds, that Jesus has mentioned birds. He mentioned a couple 
uh, weeks ago in the previous chapter. Keep going. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Doesn't that just kind of cut to the heart right there? We've talked often that, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is this surgeon, right? And he cuts and rips out and then he mends together. And this is what he's doing. This is, he's ripping out some. Those of you who are worrying, what has that, that done for you? Can you add a single hour to your span of life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, which seems like a big thing that you're adding something to your life, you can't even add something to your life. Why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies. This is the second illustration he uses, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So these two illustrations that Jesus puts back to back, let's look at the flowers first. Flowers is this idea of this is how we treat money. And Jesus has given this illustration to kind of make application um, to, to our lives. And he uses the illustration of flowers. That often, if we're not careful, we're tempted to go to money to get safety. We want the, the bigger our bank account, the more stuff that we have, the safer we feel. We feel like we've insulated ourselves from calamities that could happen. And it's not wrong to save. Proverbs tells us that we should save. And that's a smart thing to save. What it is telling us, when we put our trust in the savings, when we sleep better because we have savings. And this is what Jesus says, you know, why would would you go to money, right, to, to get safety? Consider the flowers. Jesus reminds his disciples that they have a father and that they're part of a family. And this is so important because, as you know, and family psychologists will tell you this, the basic needs of any kid, what they need from their parents are those two things, to feel valued and worth and to feel safe. And you remove those two things and the rest of their life can be marred. But if you give them those two things, they can become anything. And this is what Jesus is saying, that we put our trust in money so that we feel safe. And it's the lie that we buy. That money comes to us and says, without the messiness of the relationship, I can give you safety. This is brilliantly illustrated in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He goes to his dad and says, give me my inheritance now. I want to leave. He says, in essence, I'm done with the messiness of this relationship. Just give me the money. And this is such a facade. Because money will always let us down. It will either disappear or it will leave you empty. Money's not unconditional. You have to be very lucky and very smart, right, with money. And it's also true of money that it never lasts. It will always leave you either in this life or in the next. And so we see our problem that money has us by the throat. He gives us the illustration of flowers, but he also gives us the illustration of the birds. He says in verse 24, look at the birds. You're so much more valuable than they are. And the reason he uses birds is because Jesus knows that we are tempted to gain our value and worth from our money. That's why we have name brands. It's not just the quality we want in name brands. That's why the name brands are always on the outside. Because we want other people to look at us and consider us more valuable because of the stuff we wear. I remember when I was in seventh grade, Jabose was like the big thing. Anybody remember Jabose? 
And they were like 40 or $50 for a pair of Jabos. And my parents like shopped at Walmart. That's where we got our stuff. I remember in eighth grade, I got my first pair of non-Walmart tennis shoes. And I thought I was, I had Reeboks, man. I thought they were the coolest thing in the world. I remember the first pair of Jabos. Like I actually got a job in seventh grade so I could afford a pair of Jabos. And I didn't buy them at Dillard's or wherever. Um, I went to a place called Solo Serve. Solo Serve was like this little place that sold irregular products. And so you know, the, the, the little messed up. And so my pants were like teal green um, and one leg was two inches shorter than the other leg. But that was okay because that's when we tight rolled pants. If you remember that, we would kind of fold it and, and you know, that kind of thing, which is some, somehow is coming back. I'm not, I'm not buying the lie. Um, so I've got these, this pair and they were just hideous. You look back, I've even got some pictures of me wearing these things. But here's the cool part. Like Jabot put the little tag on the zipper right here so that anyone that looked at your crotch, I guess, would, <laughs> it's a weird place for him, would know, right, man, this is a man of stature and value. <laughs> I'm sure all my seventh grade buddies thought that because he is wearing this hideous pair of teal green jabots with one leg two inches longer than the other. But it, it kind of it plays into our sense of security and value, doesn't it? The more stuff we have. The, you know, we, we need a new truck, not because our trucks are, are, are falling apart, Often the things that make us unhappy are not the things that we have. It's the things that we don't have, the things that our neighbors have. It drives me crazy when I see a little 16-year-old get this brand-new $40,000, $50,000 truck, and I'm over here driving a $5,000 truck, you know, and working hard and appreciate that thing. It's what we don't have sometimes that makes us so miserable. And this is why, because we connect value and worth to our stuff. And Jesus is speaking right into that. And saying, consider the birds. Consider the birds. You're so much more valuable than they. Jesus knows that we're tempted to gain our value and worth from our money. And in our society, our culture, it's easy for a person who begins to make more and more money to think they're more and more valuable. And their self-esteem and pride begins to grow. And just as easy as the guy who doesn't make money, who loses his job, that he begins to buy the lie that he is worthless or not valued very much. But you see, it's the same sin. We're going to money to get value. And this is the reminder, I think, kind of the first point here is that we are not God. We're not God. Money plays into our God complex. When we have money, we tend to think that we don't need anything else. But we are not God. When we have money, we think we don't need anyone or anything. And we certainly don't need a savior. We can do what we want and when we want. And ultimately, we're going to be miserable. This is exactly why Jesus said it's so hard for a rich man to go to heaven. Why would Jesus make such a statement that it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven? And how should we as Americans respond to that statement who by the very definition are the wealthiest people in the world? To give you some perspective, 80% of the world, 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. We spend that at Starbucks a day. And Jesus is giving us some perspective that you're wealthy and when you're wealthy, it's so dangerous because what you're going to be tempted to do is to think that you do not need a savior anymore, that you are your own savior. Just look at the way that we respond to some of those things. Does money make us anxious? Do you work 
instead of Sabbath because you think you've got to earn more money or because if you take a day off that everything's going to fall apart? When the stock markets take a downshift, do you get uneasy? Do you check your bank account four or five times a day just to make sure everything's in there and all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed so that everything can come together? And when it doesn't, do you immediately move into panic? I knew I was preaching this and God gave me one of the hardest weeks with money I think I've ever had. It was like one thing after another of unexpected cost. I felt like Tim for a little bit here. Like Tim's gone through like two months of just this random, like, uh, you know, just money just pouring out on everything's breaking and snakes are attacking them. And well, he lives in the middle of a neighborhood without woods anywhere. And he's got like a, you know, a 10 foot anaconda, like attacking his house. God, yeah, and this is how God does this. Listen, this is just not a sermon. Like this is, this is the truth of God's word. And what God wants to do is take his truth and he wants to screw it down in your life a little bit. Not for just to pass over you. He wants you to hear the words because these are ultimately words that give us life. And I tend to read some of these things and think, man, there's people in our church that need to hear this. And it doesn't really apply to me until God gives me one of these weeks. So I take the car to the shop and I think it just needs a little alignment and find out that all my tires are bad. And so we get tires and then I take it back to the shop so they can align it. And they said, well, you've got this one part that's missing. It's going to be another $250. And I was like, oh man, okay. And then the guy calls back like five hours later and said, you know what? It's not just the 250 part. It's really the 750 part that we're going to have to replace. And then just the anxiety sets in. I don't know if it's happened to you. Like all of a sudden, I'm in a terrible mood. I am so frustrated, so much so that my kids are coming to me asking, Daddy, what's wrong? And I don't know what you believe in that moment, but you don't believe that you have a sovereign father. You believe that somehow that by your own ingenuity and your own, you know, brilliance, that you are holding all these things together. And God lets us walk through times like that to remind us of this very same thing. This is what I heard him saying to me this week. Luke, you are not God. We are not omnipotent or omnipresent. We don't know where life is going or even what we need today or tomorrow. We don't even know what we need. We're like little kids collecting random things. We might know what we want, but we don't know what we need. Only God knows that. I remember Leighton and I, we used to go through, um, we used to go through uh, uh, Home Depot, and any like screws or like you know, pieces of things that were laying around the floor, we collected those things, and we put them in a big jar because one day we were going to build a robot, right? I'm like five or six. We're going to build a robot with just screws. That's all we had was random screws. And you look back, I laugh at that because I had no idea how to rope. I had no idea how to build a robot. I didn't know any of those things. I thought they were cool and they're made of screws. So I'm going to collect some and build something. And I think in the very same way, sometimes we think we know what we need. And God says, you don't even know what you need. You're not even God. If you would just trust me, you're not, you're not, um, <laughs> you're not omnipotent. You're not omnipresent. You're not, you can't even, you can't even add an hour to your life by worrying about this. He's telling his disciples who don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow. We're not God. And here's kind of the, the, the second part, the backside of the coin. We're not God, but we are children of God. And this might be the most important thing just to kind of hear that we are children of God through Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. 
And if this is where Jesus in this passage starts using the word father. He starts using the word father, not God. I'm introducing you to God. He starts using the word father. And we're reminded that we need a divine father. Human parents, even if you had the best parents, and some of your parents are here, even if you had the best parents, parents are just training wills, right? Ephesians 3.15 says, from whom all fatherhood is derived, that the best fathers are only best fathers because they're connected to the one true and great father, Father God. All parents are just training wheels, just reflections, just a type of the true image. We need family love and we need unconditional love. And there's not a person on the face of the earth that can supply that perfectly. All of us fail our children, even with the best of intentions. We can't fully give our children worth. We can't fully give them safety as much as we want to. Just as our parents will one day abandon us, we will abandon our kids. And if not in life, certainly in death. This is why we have to point them to their need for a divine father who never leaves and loves them perfectly. He gives ultimate worth and uncompromised safety. We need a divine father. The second thing I want you to see about the father is the inheritance of the divine father. I love that passage uh, on down. I don't know if we even uh, read it today. In verse 32, where he says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What an inheritance. We get not just good stuff, not just the promise of streets of gold, but we get the kingdom. Look at Ephesians 1 that talks about this very same thing. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or open, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is that hope? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? You might ought to go read that whole chapter. I wish we had time to unearth just Paul's saying, I wish you as sons and daughters of God knew what your inheritance was. This is real safety. This is real value. Not things that disappear, but things that last forever. The inheritance of the divine father. And the third thing is the love of the divine father. I love that he uses this word tender, uh, this, uh, this word little flock. Such a, such a tender idea. Talking to his disciples, fear not little flock. Another passage and several times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And this is those that believe and put their faith and trust in him as his little flock. Jesus saying, listen here, little flock. Think of your commitment to protect your kids. You will go to any lengths to protect them, won't you? That if they're in any remote danger, that automatically you're going to sacrifice everything you have to so that you can go and love them well and to protect them. We even have this term, mama bear, right, in our vernacular to express this very same thing. Like I'm going mama bear on somebody. I don't mean to embarrass Ashley, but I think I'm fixing to. Um, One time, Claire was really little, and we went to Sam's um, to go um, shopping, and it was kind of raining, so I, like, pulled over to the side, and Claire was real little, I think, in the little carrier, and Ashley just rushed in, 
And so I finally got inside, and then the lady who's like working at Sam's like went over to address Ashley and told her that she should never bring her kid through the rain like that. Oh my goodness, did Ashley go mama bear? I thought she was about to hurt someone. And you know, Ashley, like just little, you know, she turned the lady's name tag over because you couldn't see her name. It was like, listen here, Flo, or whatever her name was. (laughs) And I could just hear, I'm like, I'm walking away. (laughs) I want nothing to do with that. But that's the kind of thing, right, that we, we want to protect our kids at all cost. No matter what's happening, and if, you, if someone insults the fact that you're not protecting them well, it like cuts you really deep to where you have to, um, you feel like you have to respond, even if it's a Sam's, right? God has connected himself to us in the same way. Just think about this. In the way that you love and want to protect your kids to, you know, to the 10,000th degree, more so does the perfect God want to protect us. And if that's true, then why would we worry? God has connected himself to us in the same way. We're his kids, and he is committed to going to the ultimate length to love us well. Think about this. Jesus, when he prays, always addresses God as Father, communicating this intimate love between the two. We'll accept all times except for one. You remember when he's on the cross? That he doesn't address him as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lost the love of God in that moment so that we could enter into it. Sin was the enemy that threatened us. Guilt and shame were on both sides. And God sent in Jesus, our hero, our savior, carrying our adoption papers to bring us into the family and to save us from our own sin. Isn't that great news? I love this verse, verse 32. Maybe we should all memorize it. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Look at all the characteristics that little verse tells us about God. First, that he's our shepherd. Fear not, little flock. We are his flock and he's our shepherd. And if he's our shepherd, then Psalms 23 applies. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is, I shall not lack anything I really need. Second, it shows us, right, that he's our father. It says it's the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not only are we his little flock, we're also his children and he's our father. He really cares for you. He really knows what you need. And he's going to work on your behalf to make sure that you have what you need. And then thirdly, we see him as the king, that he can give us the kingdom because he is our king. This adds a tremendous element of power to the one who provides for us. Shepherd, his protection and provision. As father, he gives us love and tenderness and authority and provision and guidance and as king. He's got all the power and sovereignty and wealth. Jesus is trying to settle the hearts of the disciples. And I think he's cutting into our hearts in this very same thing. Because I think we would be foolish to not even be honest with, enough with ourselves in this room to think that there's not many times, if not many times a day, that we tend to shift this understanding that we are children of God into we think we have to be God. And Jesus gives them, uh, the disciples and all those thousands that are listening some application. Let's look at it real quick and we'll wrap up. Verse 32 again. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
This is what he tells them. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the two things that he kind of brings at home. Up to this point, we're like, man, that's good stuff. Until Jesus says, okay, here's what I want from you. I want you to be generous with your money. Last year, the evangelical church, that's those who claim that they put their faith and hope in Jesus, gave away 2.5% of their income. 2.5%. I don't think that is the definition of generosity. If anything, the evangelical church has gotten great at building bigger barns. The very thing that Jesus warned us not to do because we're going to put our identity into our stuff. The two things he gives us, right, that we're going to have to do to take our life back is one, give money to the poor, verse verse 33. And the second is to give money towards the kingdom, to seek first the kingdom. Every morning we wake up and we decide what our heart is going to seek that day. And on hour to hour basis, when I got the bad news about the car last week and I started just this big ball of just anxiousness and luckily Jason was with me for most of it so I couldn't like fall off the edge you know I had to look kind of spiritual in front of him freaking out on the inside we decide every day what we're going to seek and for some of us seeking we want to seek more stuff and some of us that all of us we have a there's a trajectory of our heart what what we're focusing on and chasing after and it's that thing that if we don't get it it just overwhelms us with frustration I think that's how you know when you don't get it you're so frustrated by the lack of it and it reveals these little idols in our hearts there's an interdependence here you have to know these things in order to live this way but you also have to discipline yourself to continue doing these things so you can keep taking hold of this truth Just living in America, right? Materialism is just creeping us up on us. And the way to counteract that is to remember who we are and whose we are, but also to have the discipline of giving generously. Giving money should be the hardest and easiest thing in the world. The hardest because you have to get rid of the idols in your heart. And the easiest because you're giving it to the one who has given you everything. Think back, there's this little band of disciples 2,000 years ago. History would reveal that they flipped the world upside down. Unbelievers would actually write about them, calling them crazy, not caring about their money, selling their possessions to care for the poor. Why were they able to do that? Because they knew something. They knew they had been blessed in Christ because of the gospel with every spiritual blessing that it talks about in Ephesians 1. They were full and able to give. So with their giving, they pointed to an awesome gospel. And I couldn't help but think, even this morning, what if we did it again? What if we were so overwhelmed with the love of the Father and who we are in him and whose we are, that he is our shepherd leading and guiding us, that he's our father providing for us, and that he's the king? This is where the universe is headed Would we live lives in such a radical way to be generous to the point to where the world would see us, they would see, man, there's something so unique about that group of people. 
what they claim must really be true. I did a lot of soul searching this week. Um, Maybe that's a better way to say uh, idol finding. I did a lot of idol finding this week. Things in my heart that I didn't even know were there. You know, sometimes if you get around a brother or if you read something and they reveal some things about you or in your life that you already are aware of and you're able to say maybe in your huddle, yeah, I know that's a problem. Thanks for bringing that back up. I'm going to address that. But it's when people begin to bring up or when the word begins to illuminate things in our heart and life that we didn't know were the problem. I think to me, that's when it's so offensive. And that's when just through weeping and repentance, you have to realign the trajectory of your life toward Christ and his beautiful gospel. 